This morning we're going to wrap up our recent series through the book of Malachi. If you're new to us or you haven't paid attention to the little book of Malachi for a little while, then I have some good news. I'm going to deliver a snapshot here in a few minutes. What I don't want to hear from the rest of the congregation is how come you didn't just do that in the first place, <laughs> preaching all these sermons. But I do think it's important that we try to summarize it after we've uh, been in a book for a little time. The book of Malachi is, you know, the last book in the Old Testament and just a few chapters long. Uh, we've been a few, several weeks in it. But uh, this morning we're going to summarize the book of Malachi and we're going to sort of think about what is it that maybe we have learned from this little book as we've journeyed through it together. But before we do that, let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before your word always needy, attempting and hoping to be humble, willing to hear what you have to say to us. Give us that grace, we pray. Help us truly to open our hearts and our minds to your message. We are so thankful that you have the words of life and that you so graciously, generously share them with us. Give us ears to hear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it has often been said in many instances, it has been proven true that those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. What we have just seen in our journey through Malachi is a snapshot of a particular period in the history of Israel, the people of Judah. And some may wonder, as often we can when we're reading portions of the Old Testament, why is this stuff even in here? And what on earth does it have to do with me or with us? Well, the Apostle Paul helps us to answer those questions. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, he, he recounts a portion of Israel's past, and then he writes this, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. You see, the more than 40% of the Bible that is historical narrative is intended to be more than just stories of how things were once upon a time. It is the record of the experiences of God's people through the years that has been preserved for God's people today in order to teach us. The Bible always has something to teach us. So maybe, just maybe, we can learn from the past so not to repeat any of the missteps in the present. At least that's the theory, and that is the hope. And as, as we come to the last of these chapters of this Old Testament book in Malachi, what have we learned? What have we learned? Well, the obvious place to look for contemporary applications and implications to age-old problems in Malachi is in the six disputations that the prophet raises. So briefly this morning, what we're going to do is go back through those six disputations. We're going to try to identify the issue that each one of them represents, and then we're going to hopefully find some application and implication. 
Out of the gate, you may recall, God reveals that the people of Israel doubt his love for them. And that is because of their harsh living circumstances. That is because of their lack of prosperity. That is because of their lack of power. They have been released from captivity and they are home, but home is not what it used to be and home is not what they want it to be. They are no longer independent. They continue to be under the oppression of a foreign ruler. They cannot trade the way that they used to trade. Their temple isn't as beautiful as the temple that they once had, nor is it as vibrant in its worship. There are all kinds of problems, and basically you would say they're in the midst of some difficult, hard times. As a result, they begin to question, does God love us? And they actually conclude, he doesn't. But you see, they expected something more. They expected something different. And God didn't deliver for them what they thought he should. And so now they doubt his love. Now let me ask you, brothers and sisters, can God love you and not give you everything you want? Can God love you and not give you everything that you ask for? Of course he can. And some of us have been around the barn long enough that we actually thank God for not giving us some of the things that we asked for. God can love us without giving us everything that we desire or think that we ought to have. In fact, he does. And God's love never assures us of a smooth or a prosperous or a trouble-free existence, which makes it silly for us to gauge the love of God for us based on our circumstances. He loves us, period. He just loves us. He loves us in times of plenty. He loves us in times of need. He loves us in seasons of sorrow and in seasons of joy. He loves us in victory and he loves us in defeat. God has chosen us Nothing will change that. And nothing will ever be able to separate us from his love. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That's what the Bible teaches us. And it is a given. It is a given. So of all the variables to assess when life goes sideways, whether or not God loves you needn't be one of them. Better to ask in seasons of trial and testing, what is my loving God up to? What does my loving God want to accomplish in these circumstances? What does he want to work in me? What is he working in others? Because he's at work. Don't question God's love. That's our takeaway. God's love is a given. So Christian, believe in the love of God for you and trust in the love of God. Now the second disputation in Malachi was the indictment against the priests. They were profaning the temple by allowing blemished offerings, by bringing in imperfect offerings and saying they were acceptable and they were okay. And God said that when they did that, they were not honoring his name. In fact, he said they were despising 
his name by doing these things. And indeed, the priests were, we spent a little bit of time going through some of those Old Testament and Levitical ceremonial requirements. The priests were allowing practices that the Lord had forbidden. And they were, in essence, approving a form of worship that the Lord wasn't pleased with. And so there is a takeaway here, first, I think, for church leaders. We can learn from these priests who are doing the wrong thing, and that is this. God instructs us in proper worship. God's word teaches us about proper worship. And we cannot, as church leaders, as worship leaders, we cannot change the standards set forth by God in his word, especially in order to please or appease the worshipers. Certainly we can't change the standards for worship that God sets forth in his word in order to profit materially, as some do, or to be more popular, as some are tempted to do. That was a temptation then. It is a temptation. I can imagine being one of those priests, and somebody brings this offering, and it's clearly unacceptable, but they really don't want to or can't be bothered to bring anything better or anything different. Think of how good they feel when the priest says, yeah, that'll do. It makes life easier for them. They changed the standards. They changed God's standards, and they pretended that God would be okay with it, and he wasn't. And that's, that's our takeaway, is that we cannot change the standards to please or appease anybody or to make ourselves more popular. So church leaders have a takeaway here in this second disputation, but also church members can learn from the negative example of the priests. Because, and I mentioned this uh, previously, the redeemed, if you, are, if you are redeemed, if you are saved, you are now part of what the scripture calls a royal priesthood. You are part of the priesthood of all believers. So you are a priest. If you are a Christian, you are a priest. And you have a duty, a priestly duty, to mediate God to the people and the people to God. That's just the role that you have. And in that role then, Will you re represent him accurately? Will you represent him unashamedly? Let us make sure that we don't individually or corporately, as a church, cheapen the gospel or downplay the cost of discipleship. Salvation is free, I think Bonhoeffer said, but it'll, it'll cost you your life. And that's the message that Jesus gives. If you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross, and come follow me. So we cannot individually or corporately compromise in these ways. We cannot say that it's anything other than what Jesus says it is. We honor the Lord when we worship him the way that he wants to be worshipped. That's the bottom line from that second disputation. It isn't just how I want to worship the Lord. I've got to understand how he wants to be worshipped and then comply with that. The third disputation in Malachi had to do with faithlessness. The priests were not being faithful to give good and true instruction. Judah's husbands were not being faithful to keep their wedding vows. They were casually dismissing their wives and marrying women from foreign lands. And through Malachi, God raises this issue of covenant fidelity, covenant faithfulness. And the principle we see is this, that whenever a people is willing to forsake its covenant commitment to God, 
it becomes easy and natural to forsake its covenant commitments to others. If, if our relationship with God is not informing and inspiring and driving our choices, then you can believe that something else is. If, it's not, if we're not acting out of our relationship with God or the context of God, we're acting out of something else, and very often what is that? It's the self. I begin to do what I want to do, or as in the time of judges, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. I don't know if you've wandered far down that road. I have at times, and I find this, that very often when I do what is right in my own eyes, it might lead to harming others. So a key takeaway from this disputation is for believers to keep the faith. The imperative in the text is to guard your spirit. Guard your spirit because your spirit's going to want to peel away from God and do what you want to do. Don't fall away. Stay faithful to God. If you can stay faithful to God, it's going to be easier for you to be faithful to others. If you will keep your commitments to God, you'll be better equipped to keep your commitments to others. So, so Malachi is really a lesson in faithlessness, isn't it? And, and what the Lord, I think, wants for us is to say, stay faithful. Stay faithful in all things. Stay faithful. Now, the fourth time God calls the people of Judah to task, it's over what they were believing about him that wasn't true. This is, remember, this is the text where they were wearying him with their words. This is where we know we're in trouble. God's tired. When God gets tired, we got a problem. And that's what's happening here. They're wearying him. They're wearing him out with their words. They're talking, they were talking about God. They were not talking to God. You see, our God is more than able to handle any of the complaints that we want to voice to him. The Psalms are full of these. They're called laments. There's not a problem with that. You may bring your complaints to God. God is able and willing to handle the complaints that you bring to him. He's not too pleased, however, when we simply choose to complain about him. And that's what these people were doing. And in the process of complaining, they're mischaracterizing God. They're, they're claiming that God delights in evil because he's not stopping evil in its tracks. And in short, they are, they're questioning whether or not he's committed to justice. Because again, they had a problem with God's timing. They had a, had a problem with God's methods. Because he did not conform to their expectations, then they said he must not be as good as as he says he is, he's probably not as good as we once thought he was. They were, as our scripture for this morning from Psalm 37 would say, fretting themselves over evildoers. They were fretting themselves over evildoers. And what does the Bible say? Don't do that. Don't worry about the, the folks who are, who, who are doing the wrong things and seem to be getting a good result. Don't worry about that, but that's what these people were doing. And as a result, they're saying, well, God's not very just. But his response to this accusation was to assure them that justice was coming. He said that he will draw near for the purpose of judgment. And when he draws near, he will be like a refiner's fire. 
He will be like a fuller's soap. He will come to purify his people. And he will separate the faithful from the faithless. He will be both judge and jury to unrepentant sinners. And he will do this when the time is right. So that is, again, a key takeaway from this interaction. God is who he says he is. He will do what he says he will do in his way and in his time. In the fifth dispute, Malachi returns to the theme of the people's wicked offerings. He's not complaining this time about the blemished offerings that they were bringing. Now this, this indictment is over their stinginess. See, the people were not bringing their tithes and offerings to the Lord as the Bible commanded them to. They were uh, withholding their giving, which leads us to believe that they were trusting in money more than they were trusting in the Lord. That they were loving money more than they loved God. And the Lord was blunt in his criticism of them. He said they were robbing him. They were robbing God. You might remember this sermon because Justin preached it. And he said, you gave me the money sermon. <laughs> Just fell that way. Now this problem of greed, the struggle to give generously and obediently to God is not just an ancient problem. It's a modern problem as well. Do you know the average professing believer is reported to give about 2.5% of his or her income to the church? Now how we know these numbers, I'm not exactly sure. I think they really are hard to nail down, but it is common to read that it is only up to a quarter of a church's families that actually tithe, the tithe being 10%. So the average church has up to perhaps a quarter of its membership tithing. And you know what that means? That means 75% or three quarters aren't doing that. They're not giving as the Bible commands, which lends some credence to the observation uh, once made by the founder of Methodism, John Wesley, who said the last part of a man to be converted is his wallet. The people in Malachi's day valued money over the Lord. And they didn't trust him to provide for them. And so he challenged them to test him in this. It's the only place in scripture where we are commanded to test God. It's in this area of finances. Why is that? Because it's such a spot for us to get tripped up in. Because it's easy for us to get our priorities messed up. Does God need our money? No, God does not need our money. Why doesn't God need our money? Because he has it already. You see, he owns it. That's what the Bible teaches us. That the earth is the Lord and all it contains. So even the stuff that you think is yours, it's ultimately not yours. God doesn't need your money. God owns your money. What does he want then? He wants us to trust him. That's what he wants. That's what he desires. He wants us to have faith in him. He wants us to love him more than stuff. He wants us to rest in him more than any bank balance. He wants himself and not money 
to be the source of our pleasure in this world and to be the source of our understanding of power in this world. This is why money is so alluring because money is power in a worldly culture, but God is power. God wants to be known as the power in our lives. The takeaway for us is to be faithful in our giving to God, to demonstrate our trust in Him by being generous, to never ever rob Him of what is His, and to make Him and not wealth our truest treasure. The sixth and the final disputation of Malachi has to do with gossip and slander. Because the people of Judah are saying stuff about God that wasn't true. Their words were harsh against God. They were saying that it was vain, that it was pointless, uh, meaningless, futile to serve the Lord. They were saying that there was no profit in keeping the charges of God and walking in God's ways. And once again, they're drawing conclusions based on their own experiences and their own observations, based on comparing themselves to others, which we noted in that message is never a good thing to do. When we end up comparing ourselves to others, when that's how we live, it usually leads into one of two ditches. One is arrogance and the other is discontentment. We either look at somebody and we have more than they do and we feel arrogant and proud about it, or we look at somebody and we have less than they do and all of a sudden, oh, I want that. And we can't be happy. So don't compare yourself to anybody else. Receive what you have as from the Father's hand, okay? Don't compare yourselves. Don't look around and draw these conclusions. This is a massive source of their problem. These people were deeply discontented, and, and, it, and, and their discontentment causes, caused them then to speak badly and harshly against God. But not all of them did that. And this is where it took us to the final dispute to, to see a glimmer of faith in the book of Malachi. It's a tough book to read, don't you think? I think it is. I think it's just hard. It's rebuke after rebuke after rebuke, but as we get to this final indictment, this final allegation, we find that there were some who actually feared the Lord and listened and, and changed and honored the name of the Lord. See, God heard them. Their names were recorded in a book of remembrance. And he said of them, they will be mine. Beloved, what a treasure to be counted among the people of God. They will be mine. And the lesson here is a simple one. Listen. <laughs> Listen to God when he speaks. Well, I say, oh yeah, of course, Pastor, we all know that. Do we do it? <laughs> Listen to God when he speaks. Be the sort of person, be the sort of people, be the sort of church that can hear and receive a word of rebuke, a word of correction. All through this little letter of Malachi, the common response of the people was to push back against what God was telling them about themselves. All through it, every time, God would bring a charge and they would say, we're in, how, what, what have we done? Prove it to us, God. They weren't willing to listen, but God, listen, God desires our humility enough to listen to what he's saying. The psalmist says today, 
if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The Lord assured King Solomon, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Malachi reminds us how eager God is for sinners to turn to him. How eager God is for his wayward people to, to return to him. That's also one of the, I'm not going to go deep into it, but these are supposed to be the people of God. And you know what? Sometimes the people of God get it wrong. And that's what was happening in Malachi's day. It's not, it's not a guarantee that because we had a relationship with God, if we don't nurture it, they're always going to be right on point and make all the right decisions and have the right frame of mind. That's exactly what's going on with these people. They have fallen far from God. But look how eager God is to get his people to return to him. He wants the wayward and the unrepentant who've never turned to him to turn to him. And he wants his own people who have gone astray to come and return to him. And this book really, as hard as it can be to read when you think about it, is all about God pursuing his people. You can say, man, it's just, it seems like chastisement after chastisement and exhortation after exhortation. This is hard stuff. Why would God do that? What, he could have just said, well, your choice. Have it your way. Instead, he visited them with his prophet. And he said, return to me. Return to me. This book is about God pursuing his people. This book reminds us that even when we are faithless, God is faithful. He is faithful to pursue. He is faithful to initiate. He is faithful to warn. That warning piece, we covered that last time in the last portion of Malachi. The God of justice is coming. The God of judgment is coming. Those who belong to the Lord will live eternally with him. And those who do not fear him will be condemned and will be eternally separated from him. And any delay in his coming is not God's tolerance of or inability to deal with the problem of evil. It is his patience that some who are lost might believe and be found. But the day is coming when the distinction between the righteous who live by faith and the unrighteous who are faithless will be plainly and forever known. Don't, don't lose sight of that. That is a massive teaching from the book of Malachi. That day is coming. Now twice in Malachi we find references to God's messenger who will prepare the way, who will come in the spirit of Elijah before the great and dreadful, great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. The New Testament interprets those references to be of John the Baptist. And Malachi speaks of the Lord who will come suddenly to his temple and who will finally draw near for judgment. And we know these promises to be fulfilled in Jesus. 400 years after Malachi, a portion of his prophecy came to pass. John the Baptist was born to prepare the way for Jesus and the God who pursues his wayward people sent his only son into the world 
the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 400 years after Malachi's voice, Jesus came. As we consider the life of Jesus that is recorded in the New Testament writings, we hold it up to the human condition that is portrayed in the book of Malachi. We find that where God's people failed and fell short, Jesus never did. We find him to be the better son, trusting in his father's love. We find him to be the better worshiper, bringing the pure sacrifice of himself as an offering to God for the sins of the world. We find Jesus to be the better priest, speaking true and life-giving words of instruction. We find Jesus to be the better husband, keeping his covenant promises to preserve and to purify his bride, which is the church. We find Jesus the better giver, withholding nothing belonging to God but giving his own body and blood. And Jesus the better witness, testifying consistently to the goodness of God and proving with his sinless life, his undeserving death, his vindicating resurrection, that God is in fact a God of justice and that through Christ's offering of himself on the cross, justice has been satisfied. And when Christ returns, final justice will be served. That's it for Malachi. What have we learned? It's not new news, but it's good news. God loves his people. And God is faithful. Our Father, we thank you for the promise of your word, the truth that is in your word. It's how we know you. It's how we know what is right and pure and just. We pray to have the faith to read your word and believe it. We know that's what you desire. We know without faith it is impossible to please you. Make us a people of faith. Help us to have faith. Preserve us from slipping back. Becoming like the people of Judah, cynical, angry, upset over the conditions of their world, the, the difficulties in their lives that led them to draw all those false conclusions about who you are and how you are and what you will and will not do. Lord, deliver us from such a thing. Help us to be steadfast in our love for you. We won't be perfect in this, but we want to try. And we can because we know that even when we are faithless, you are faithful and you will hold us fast. And we praise you and we thank you for that, Lord. Father, we pray as we continue in this season of celebration that we would need little else but a reminder of a baby born into this world by a virgin in accordance with your divine and eternal plan to remind and restore in us a faith that you are, in fact, a loving God. And you are absolutely trustworthy and faithful. We love you and praise you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.